I'm Alexia Russell and welcome to the Details Long Read. This week it's Immortal Bangers and Me by Shane Carter, published in North and South's April edition. Shane Carter of Straight Jacket Fits and Dimmer played two live shows with the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra in Christchurch and Dunedin late last year. The classical fanboy recounts his experience in the story, and now he's with us to read it out loud. Songwriter, guitarist, vocalist Shane Carter, welcome to the detail. Shane, how did this collaboration come about? Like, who approached who and why? Um, well, the symphony orchestra approached me, and um, but I'd sort of made myself known to the orchestra, um, slowly insinuated myself, um, no, by attending um, symphony orchestra shows, and I'd actually sort of made friends with a couple of people in the orchestra who, um, uh, funnily enough, liked my music. And um, yeah, so uh, I'd also met the um, CEO of the orchestra, Peter Biggs, um, via his wife Mary, who runs the Featherston Booktown Festival, which I uh, uh, went and visited when I released my book. So, yeah, I sort of had these tenuous connections, and um, they knew that I was sort of a, a secret, class, or not-so-secret classical fanboy. Mm-hmm. So um, when they suggested the show, um, I thought, what, what a wonderful idea. Mm. Why do you say funnily enough? Is it, is it such an awkward juxtaposition of two genres that, that it shouldn't really go together? Yeah, no, well, interesting, um, interesting point. Um, good judgment there. Um, yeah, I... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Just coming from, um, a, you know, I was speaking to a really famous classical pianist the other day, as you do, <laughs> and uh, they said, oh, how did you get into music? And I said, um, oh, I got into it through punk rock, and that was just, there was sort of the silence, and that was sort of beyond the frame of reference. And I guess, um, you know, classical music is traditionally sort of more, it's got kind of more of an academic ear and about it. Whereas I come from um, a non-academic kind of punk rock background, you know, when I was a kid, that's mm. how I got into music. So, but one thing I've learned, you know, in my um, uh, walk through life is that uh, music is music, you know, and people have different to- uh, tif- different tools to express it, but it's all, um, yeah, as, uh, as I said before at one of the concerts, actually, when I was rabbiting on, it's vibrations and tones, you know, and uh, that transmit a feeling. And uh, people do that, you know, through three chords or through these amazing, you know, extended symphonies or whatever. So it's, it's all music. So when I say, oh, funnily enough, and sort of, um, you know, put up those generic um, barriers, uh, yeah, I'm all for actually removing those barriers because, yeah. Yeah. So how were you classically musically educated at all before Straight Jacket Fits? Because you sound very familiar with the classics. How far back does that go? Look, I don't actually read music and I don't write music and I have no technical um, background at all, you know. Um, my, you know, I go and do some mentoring at high schools these days and the resources that the kids have are amazing, but um, back when I was a kid, um, my musical education... Um, uh, was uh, the music teacher um, putting on a cassette of Casey Kasem's American Top 40 and walking outside <laughs> to have a cigarette. And um, in some ways I kind of like that because speaking as a guitar player and a musician, like uh, with my guitar playing, for instance, I don't want to play the same scales that everyone else plays. And I just sort of feel sometimes that, you know, you can get a technical a grounding and you sort of by rote, you, you automatically go to sort of what you're supposed to do. 
And, you know, music in any art form is quite often what you're not supposed to do. And you can furrow the, the familiar um, trough, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, um, I don't know, just sort of those points of difference are what make you unique as a musician. But then again, you know, I wish sometimes I did have a bit more technical knowledge because I don't know the name of half the chords I play. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, and you know the really great musicians from the classical area, for instance, they know all the technical aspects inside out, but they also play with soul. And if there's anything that you should do as a musician, is that you play your truth and you play with soul, no matter where you come from, because that's what make, makes music great, and that's what makes people feel your music. You call yourself in the story a classical fanboy. So when did that happen? What switched that on for you? Well, you know, I'd gone a long time without knowing anything about classical music. It was just sort of this removed, you know, ghetto of music that um, I'd never entered. And I had friends, you know, who studied, uh, you know, classical music and all that kind of stuff. And they tried to turn me on to it. But, you know, I kind of wasn't ready for it. And it was just sort of this pile of notes. And um, that didn't make any sense to me. But how I got into it was um, I did a piano album several years ago now and it was an instrument that I'd never played before but I wanted to sort of keep challenging myself and do something that was tangential and not the same old, same old. And I thought, well, the people who've really investigated the sonorities and the potential of the piano are the classical people. So I went and checked out the classical piano canon and uh, you know people like Chopin and Beethoven sonatas and all that kind of stuff and because it was one instrument, I could actually comprehend it as opposed to a symphony with all the interlinking you know, lines and the interlinking um, sections. It was kind of simple enough for an idiot to get it, which this idiot did just by listening hard out. And the only, thing you can, the only way you comprehend music is by listening to it, and eventually it starts to make sense and its logic makes itself apparent. So that was my in. So I don't know, that's probably, you know, probably for the last good part of the last 10 years or maybe a bit shorter, that's how long I've been into it. And yeah, a wonderful journey. And um, I've discovered so much great stuff and it's confirmed so many things about um, art and how the truth lives on. And, you know, I heard this beautiful quote yesterday. It's from Bill Evans, the jazz pianist. And he apparently he said to one of his mates uh, shortly before he died, he said, you know, tend to the truth and beauty and none of the other stuff matters. And I think that's true with every form of music. And um, every form of music, you know, the top 5% is the creme de la creme. The rest is sort of okay to average to, to poor. But in every genre, you know, there's great stuff. And the tune you missed out, and sorry to mention this, <laughs> she speeds. You say in the story <laughs> that you didn't want to do it because you were scared that's what they'll write on your gravestone. Did you have a, a sort of a disappointed reaction from the crowd at all, or did they understand? Uh, no, it was more the sort of organisers from the NZSO who sort of said, well, like, initially I just put my songs are just all obscure. They're all from my piano album, actually, all quite obscure ones. And they said, well, you've got to put in a couple of popular favourites, you know. Mm. And, um, yeah, She Speeds, I don't know. I think my reaction to that tune, it's completely childish and contrary and... It's kind of this uh, childish thing where people say, oh, look, I really like that song off your album. And you go, oh, don't you like the other nine? (laughs) And, um, yeah, but I think if you talk to any artist who have sort of, you know, their hit song kind of thing, they'll always feel like it's a bit of an albatross around their neck and, uh, you know, the song that people always shout out for. But, uh, you know, I should grow up and just appreciate the fact that, you know... Not that you wrote a song that everyone loves. Well, hey, and... uh, yeah, but look, I refuse to grow up. It's too late now. <laughs> Do you wish now that you could have had this sort of musical 
confluence earlier in your life, you know, to shape your music a bit differently? Not at all. Um, you know, it's, it's not so much the, you know, look, it's not the riffs and it's not the notes and uh, the way the riffs and the, or the notes are organised that inspire me or that I think, oh, I'm going to go rip off that part or it's just more the spirit of the music, you know, and it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, just truth and you can feel that in great music. You can feel someone's truth being transmitted and uh, it doesn't matter whether they're in the 1700s or... You know, if they're in Brooklyn right now, you know. And uh, that, to me, has always been the defining thing. And so when I write music myself, I know when I write something that's a bit that's not true or has an element of just filling in the blanks. And those songs don't work, you know. And um, I guess it's like any art form, you know. You know when it's true and you're the only barometer. You can't imagine this imaginary demographic or, you know, this audience that you're going to write this tune for. You've got yeah. to write it for yourself. You've got to feel it. Not everyone will like it, but there's people who will feel that too, and mm. that's that's what it's all about. So you're still writing music, I presume? I am, yeah. yeah. I actually went through a period in the pandemic when I was sitting around in my ass locked down in Auckland, and I thought, oh, I actually thought that maybe I wouldn't write any more songs. I thought I might become a writer. But um, now, I, look, the tide comes in and the tide goes out with creativity, and uh, yeah, I really want to write some new music. And yeah, I'm writing some tunes at the moment, and um, I think... You know, I'm at a stage in my life where it's um, probably too late for an alternative career or to go get a <laughs> um, job in finance. So um, I'd probably be a poor financial advisor, actually. And, uh, yeah, you know, so, um, look, I'm going to rock till I drop, basically, because um, that's what I do. This is Immortal Bangers and Me. There's no more ominous tone from an orchestra than silence. I'm discovering this at the Michael Fowler Centre in Wellington, an uber-70s construct of wood and Kubrickian symmetry where I'm in rehearsal singing with the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra, and between songs no one is saying a word. For a newbie more used to idle practice room chat, this is disconcerting. No one in the NZSO goes shit year at the end of Strauss's four last songs or asks if Sandra is having a party. An orchestra is like an army where order must be maintained, so everyone is keeping stumm. I entered the stage at the start of the day to a heavy and resonant hush. It's intimidating to enter the force field of 90 silent musicians, because musicians have opinions, and I can feel the weight of several of those whirring away. Conductor Alexander Shelley gives me an encouraging smile from his podium. Alexander is devilishly good-looking, wickedly handsome, and a hell of a spunk. He's dressed in form-fitting gear. He's an international conductor from England, and both his parents are concert pianists. Before I know it, the music is up. I'll give this to the orchestra. They don't muck around. It's Drop You Off from the first Dimmer album. The violins and violas make a shuffle by slapping their instruments with their hands. The double basses drop into some serious business to the left. Further back, the clump of a drum joins the mule of a lonely trumpet. It's a luxuriant thing to sit in with an orchestra, like the big lovely bath I had back at my accommodation. You hear a different sonority depending on where you sit, because an orchestra is full of sonorous tones. Line up with the French horns or behind the harp and you get a completely different mix. 
every mix sounds good. I sing in front of the strings, which is like lying on a bed of velvet. We're doing a show with a new format. An artist curates a set of classical favourites for the NZSO to perform and then joins them for a mini-set of their own music. This sounds like an awesome idea, especially if the artist is me. What a dream it is for a classical fanboy to DJ the National Orchestra and then rock out with them at the end. We'd be playing the town halls in Christchurch and Dunedin, which also sounded flash. I was careful with my choices from the canon. I wanted to display the dexterity of the orchestra and the range of their repertoire, and I opted for short pieces to keep the set ticking over. I imagined the audience to be ignorant and uninitiated, i.e. my friends, and I knew the extent of their attention spans. No matter, in the end there are only two forms of music involved, beautiful and weird and obsessive. There were no mid-tempo scherzos. The opening number, Gerard Grisey's Lear Space Acoustiques, was a one-note grind with the bass line so severe it could clear a forest. Oh, come on, shouted someone in the Dunedin audience when the Grisey finished, obviously afraid that they'd be trapped with this racket for the next two hours. But then came the Prokofiev, the beautiful love theme from Cinderella, which calmed things down. I was in heaven for three days hearing the orchestra rehearse. This was immortal music made to order, it seemed, especially for me. I'd take a seat in the middle of the empty Michael Fowler, the NZSO's rehearsal space, ten rows back, in a vague sort of ecstasy as the orchestra rolled out one banger after another. I was struck by how complete the tune sounded straight out of the gate. No gingerly finding the sound, a dip of the conductor's baton and boom, there it was. I could only respect the players in the orchestra because they were experts who'd been practising since they were five. The music seemed to take on extra power and poignancy because of its contrast to current events and the divisions and strains of the day. Here were the good and exceptional things people were capable of, potential and invention, generosity and commonality. You could go so far as to call it love. It was there in the Handel and the Stravinsky and the Hermann and the Liszt. It would hopefully be hinted at in the Shampi Carter set too, although it seemed a bit of a stretch trying to follow that lot. Still, this version of Drop You Off is bad, as in badass, sick, fat. An orchestra live compared to on record is IMAX to an MP3. The music is 3D in layers that don't exist in earbuds, and you feel the molecules being pushed around. Because it's my first rehearsal, I'm a bit confused by the wave of Alexander's baton, and I'm not sure whether to follow the upstroke, downstroke, or somewhere in between. An orchestra is a swirling, sifting beast to sing with because it doesn't have the beat of a band. The music glides and feels less specific, and the cues come from instruments I'm not used to. But I know the song and pitch my vocal down the middle and mostly find my way. Drop You Off finishes to a non-response from the orchestra, although there may have been a murmur from the brass. Do you feel comfortable, asks Alexander, referring to tempo. No, I feel incredibly uncomfortable, I reply truthfully, one man facing 90 musicians. This gets a laugh. Later on, on my way out after the rehearsal, I pass Andrew from the cellos. Loved it, he said, which I was chuffed and relieved to hear. It helps to have a stall. 
My stall was a tall one with a blue cushion. Originally I was only going to use it at rehearsal, but I ended up using a stall at the shows as a prop and as a security blanket and as an island in the middle of a vast and unfamiliar ocean. Sometimes I'd get up and wander around in a small circle to help with the high note or to shake off some nervous energy, but the stall became my mate. The awkwardness of being a guitar player with no guitar was resolved. I could also symbolically bow out by being seated in the bits where I didn't sing. I often feel sorry for the classical singer stranded at the front of the stage, waiting for forever for an interlude to end so they can come in. It's not like they can do a jig to break the tension. Most cope by staring into space at nothing, like a cat, or by displaying a major interest in a small part of the balcony. There must be special training or counselling for that. I sat on a right angle on my stool, facing across the stage rather than out into the auditorium, because I wanted to connect with the other musicians. I also took a risk on day one by addressing the group directly. I wasn't sure if it was protocol to talk to the orchestra, or whether I was meant to go through the conductor like he was my interpreter or nurse. Perhaps I had to make an appointment through the front office. I was painfully aware that rabbiting on to an army of strangers who had no real avenue of reply could be seen as self-indulgent. But we were musicians playing the same song. As the writer of these songs, explaining their intent might be helpful. I did keep my comments short. I know not where I stand was about my dad and colonialism. If I Were You was a noir romance. The arranger and I used the opening shot of Breakfast at Tiffany's as a vibe for that. Moon River playing as a taxi drifts through the gloom of dawn down an empty Manhattan canyon. I said that Randolph's going home was an old song about the death of a friend, and that it was a challenge to inhabit a tune written decades ago and to not sell it cheap. Amy and Jessica from the second violin said later that they found these comments helpful, although that may have been them being nice. The people in the front office were asking if I was going to do She Speeds, but I didn't want to do sheath speeds because I'm scared that that's what they'll write on my gravestone. We did play Crystallator, though, the only song where I had my guitar, and dropping that piece of trouble on the propriety of a town hall was so perverse my work is close to done. The NZSO imitated the guitar screech and feedback of Crystallator with two high winds and piercing trumpets. The rest of the orchestra pounded away like a Shostakovich nightmare that was more of a nightmare than a Shostakovich symphony already was. The arranger on my songs was Tane Upjohn Beetson, a Wellington composer who, despite his relative youth, has a history of work with the orchestra. He also has skills which quickly became clear as we made plans for the show over Zoom. We dispensed with having a band. Pop and classical can have trouble meeting up. Sometimes it seems like pop or rock only refer to the old school when they want some syrupy strings. I've often seen something symbolic in the clear perspex sound buffers used to divide a band from an orchestra. It can feel like a clash of cultures, an awkward fit, everyone careful not to step on anyone else's toes. Tane got around that by using the original notes and dynamics of the band, but widening them and spreading them across the orchestra. Forty violas and violins could cover a synth pad. The percussionists had access to every drum under the sun. The bass lines could be taken care of by instruments otherwise used for forestry and hauling down trees. The winds and brass intersected all over the shop. 
There was Kirsten on the Celeste and Carolyn on the beautiful harp. Who needs the squish of a band when you have such an incredible palette of sound? I loved the arrangements because I could relate to them and there were no gratuitous fiddly bits. I think my co-performers were impressed too because by the time we did the gigs it felt like they really had my back. Of course I couldn't help myself and there were lowbrow moments in the show. The seven-year-old in me felt the need to puncture the occasionally solemn air of grown-ups being serious. That kicked ass I offered unhelpfully in Christchurch about the Messian. And there's our introduction, said Alexander as he cued in the next song. Two months later he'd be conducting Hilary Hahn in Canada, and I'm sure she didn't say that kind of thing. But it did kick ass. I made an Academy Award-style speech at the end of the night in Dunedin. One so long, a cellist and viola player were yawning, explaining how as an errant teenager I'd been in the gutter in Moray Place, and here I was a half-block later, fronting the NZSO at the town hall. It's a wonder the orchestra didn't start up like at the Academy Awards to cut me off. The orchestra administrators had asked me to provide a commentary at the show so you can blame them. You just missed Did you a line, want to miss there? a line? Yeah. I knew you guys were going to pull me out. Yeah, I don't like that line. Okay. <laughs> so can I just leave that out? Yes. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. No one's going to look. Who's going to ring up and sue? I'll, I'll arrange for someone to talk. Right. I'll direct them straight to you. <laughs> so, oh, everybody, we're interrupting this broadcast just to tell you. Um, yeah. There's a line missing. <laughs> not, that ju- not that we're Not that we're judging. Uh, yes, but um, you may have noticed those who are reading along with their copy of North and South may have noticed. Yeah. Th- those reading in unison with Mr. Carter. <laughs> right, okay, so. Um, yeah, where are we? Where was I? There was also the discovery of how perilous walking onto a stage filled with a 90-piece orchestra was, because that area is a melee of music stands, people, feet, bows and elbows, with no obvious path to the front. I could have done with the conductor's baton or that grisé bass line to cut through the jungle. I stumbled entering the stage in Christchurch, and again on the way out. I was hoping nobody noticed, but of course everyone did. But these orchestra shows were a highlight for me, a career highlight, a life highlight, just to be involved in a sound that immense pulling that kind of magic with my songs. The weight of the sound in a weird way made the songs feel more legitimate. I guess there was the prestige and credibility of being involved with such an accomplished and serious unit too. It was a class affair. My mum would have been proud, and everyone wants to make their mum proud. We closed the night with Waiting Game, I once scored a version of the song for the choir at St Hilda's Collegiate School and the sound of fresh feminine voices was angelic and transportive. Tane has used these same choir notes for this arrangement and once again I hear the same clear, hopeful voices in the chords. The IMAX kicks in. French horns, bassoon, piccolo, all intermingle. I know it won't be long until Grace is given runs the opening line. The big sound lifts behind me, and grace is given form. That was Immortal Bangers and Me by Shane Carter, published in North and South's April edition. The detailed long read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next weekend with another long read. Kakita Anno. 